This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. This morning, I introduced Bill C-26. This legislation will protect Canadian cybersecurity by strengthening the partnerships between the government and the telecommunications sector, federal regulators, enhanced supports for sectors of the economy that are vital to national security and public safety, and offer new tools to protect Canadians in cybersecurity. That was Public Safety Minister Marco Mendicino this past June as he introduced new cybersecurity legislation. Bill C-26 may address an issue that's widely regarded as essential, but once Canadian privacy and civil liberties experts had the opportunity to read the fine print in the bill, many came away concerned. Indeed, by September, a coalition of groups and experts wrote to the minister and party leaders, stating, and I quote, Bill C-26 is deeply problematic and needs fixing. As drafted, it risks undermining our privacy rights and the principles of accountable governance and judicial due process, which are the fabric of Canadian democracy. The legislation needs to be substantively amended to ensure it delivers effective cybersecurity protections while safeguarding these essential democratic principles. Brenda McPhail, the director of the Privacy Technology and Surveillance Program at the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, led the effort to place Bill C-26 in the public spotlight. She joins me on the podcast to discuss the bill and the myriad of concerns that it raises. Brenda, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, thank you for, for coming on to, to talk about a bill that, that hasn't got a lot of attention, but I think it should. You know, Canadians thinking about privacy have at least in recent months been focusing primarily, I think, on Bill C-27, the update to Canadian privacy legislation. But you've brought together some leading privacy and civil liberties groups to say, you know, hold on a second, don't be sleeping on C-26 and its implications. So for those that haven't heard, and I suspect there are many, many, many listeners that haven't, why don't we start there? What is Bill C-26 and where is it at in the parliamentary process? So the formal title for Bill C-26 is an act respecting cybersecurity, amending the Telecommunications Act and making consequential amendments to other acts. The usual Canadian mouthful of a title. Um, It received first reading in June of 2022, and it is still languishing and awaiting second reading before it can be referred to committee. Um, This bill, you're right to say that it's an important bill that's flying under the radar. Uh, because it's actually trying to do quite a few things. First of all, it, it gives the governor and council and the minister of industry in particular a number of powers to give directions to telecommunications service providers that require them to do or stop doing anything they think is necessary for infrastructure security. It also creates a fairly extensive administrative monetary penalty scheme, so fines, that are intended to make providers comply with the directions. And then it provides for judicial review of those orders in a problematic way that we can talk about. And then it creates a new Critical Cyber Systems Protection Act, which is intended to create a framework for protecting what they call critical cyber systems of services and systems that are vital to national security or public safety. So those are the kind of systems in federally regulated sectors like banking or telecommunications or or nuclear energy or transportation systems. And the act allows the governor and council to do things like designate a service as vital, so therefore subject to the law, 
and then require operators of that vital service to create a cybersecurity plan or a program, engage in some widespread information sharing, um, and face consequences for noncompliance. So in other words, it, it's got quite a wide scope. Okay, covers a pretty broad range of things, but I suspect for a lot of people to take away when they hear that brief description is, oh, it's a cybersecurity bill and isn't cybersecurity a problem? We need uh, or want the government to ensure that uh, these kinds of issues are addressed and that uh, there are the necessary powers to effectively deal with cybersecurity. So I want to get into some of the specifics, but you know, as you look at this bill and, and begin to raise awareness, what are some of the, the high level takeaway concerns that uh, you have? Well, you're absolutely right that the, the sort of public pitch of this bill speaks to a high level good. And it's important for Canada to have a clear legal framework for cybersecurity expectations. And it's important that there be explicit responsibilities for operators of critical infrastructure. Um, so the idea behind the bill is a good thing. In fact, it's probably long overdue. Certainly we're behind, you know, other global, um, Country, countries around the world uh, similar to us. That said, um, what we need in a cybersecurity framework is a framework that prioritizes security without disproportionately impacting privacy rights, principles of accountable governance, judicial due process. Um, and I and the civil society colleagues who all came together to write a letter of concern that we sent to various government ministers and leaders simply just don't think they've hit the right balance. In part, some of the problem might be because they have taken a really hardcore national security approach to this problem. And that might seem intuitively reasonable, but anyone who's done any work in the national security sphere knows that secrecy is a watchword in that sphere. Um, and sometimes, according at least to our courts who have occasionally slapped the wrists of our national security bodies for failing in their duty of candor to the court, um, national security bodies tend to embrace secrecy in ways that are unnecessary. Uh, one might say disproportionate, um, occasionally at least skirting legality, if not illegal. So we'd like to see a framework more focused on recognizing the push and pull of all the rights that are at stake in a regime that's necessarily going to implicate potential access to the information infrastructures that we all depend on, and that's going to implicate the information that we all create that flows across those infrastructures. So that's a long way of saying we really want this bill to take, or a revised version of this bill, to take a more holistic view of public safety, a safety that protects us not just from malicious actors on the internet, um, but also from state overreach, which is a security risk to people who get caught up in that system. It is. I mean, this brings this is reminiscent or certainly brings back memories of the debates around lawful access, which are ongoing for a long time. But recognition that there is a need to ensure appropriate powers, but also a need to ensure that there's there's an appropriate balance. And the secrecy issues were certainly a recurring theme then. And, and you've mentioned here, too. We'll, we'll come back. I'd like to come back to some of the, the secrecy related issues in a moment. But. First, why don't we focus a little bit on a couple of the issues that, that you highlight in the letter that will be familiar to people who, who have focused on some of these balancing questions. First off, surveillance and concerns that this legislation could open the door to new surveillance obligations. Can you explain uh, how that might happen, with the, what your concerns around that are? Sure. So Bill C-26 introduces a number of powers that ramp up surveillance activities on essential infrastructures. 
cyber infrastructures. So for example, it allows the government to secretly order telecommunication providers um, to do anything or refrain from doing anything that the minister thinks is necessary to prevent interference, manipulation, or disruption. So that's really broad. And then there's a non-exhaustive list in the bill that follows that provision, which doesn't constrain it at all. So one of the requirements is to implement specified standards. That sounds quite benign. Uh, but a concern that civil society has is that that kind of provision might be used to require ISPs to insert backdoors or otherwise undermine end user security in the name of public safety. And I think we're all familiar with the whole going dark because of encryption debate that makes that actually a real possibility and not just sort of a hyperbolic or dystopian fantasy. In relation to surveillance, it makes sense that a cybersecurity bill would mandate that network providers have a plan for cybersecurity. Uh, but, and you've alluded to this, we're concerned that there's a real risk that operators will start collecting more information than they currently do on customer behavior or keeping it longer than usual to comply with reporting requirements. To, to sort of frame that a bit in a slightly different context, privacy advocates are concerned that laws to protect kids online are actually going to require more collection and tracking of age-based information for minors, which might not be happening with the same intensity without those kind of laws. And it's the same kind of concern here. Uh, you know, there's a question, will companies either be required in the regulations or will they just think out of self-preservation that they should engage in more information collection and storage than they are currently doing, than is otherwise necessary simply to comply with the bill? And then where's the right line to draw? between holding, asking them to hold and report on the right information genuinely needed for effective security and respecting principles of data minimization that are often neglected in this age of big data, but are really fundamentally so important for privacy protection. Yeah, I mean, this sounds like a bill that raises a whole series of privacy-related concerns coming out of some of those surveillance-related issues. It's not a bill getting much attention from a privacy perspective, but you know, what, the way you're describing it suggests that there are some real privacy risks, the, the risk that privacy might ultimately be undermined based on where they've tried to strike the balance. Absolutely. Uh, there are several ways, I think, that privacy is at risk in this bill. Um it's actually privacy concerns that first brought my attention to it. Although then, of course, putting on my national security hat, the concerns expanded radically. But with relation to privacy, I mean, the first thing is, of course, a cybersecurity forensic investigation is going to capture a lot of personal information and private interactions, um, potentially. So things like our emails, our browsing records, maybe location data. So there are significant risks there, which is not to say that those kind of investigations aren't necessary, but the bill authorizes or requires investigations without even a nod to requiring those conducting them uh, or who are authorized to share information under the bill or report on them to pay even some basic attention to principles of reasonable privacy expectations in the information or the, or the principles of necessity and proportionality in the stages of their investigation or at the point of at the point between the investigation and the sharing or reporting up of the information. Another area where privacy is at risk is in the really broad provisions around expanded information sharing. Um, with the Canadian Security Establishment, the CSE, which is our signals intelligence body, uh, but also a long list of other potential recipients, 
that goes beyond uh, domestic ministers and bodies to ministers, you know, including the Minister of Foreign Affairs and National Defense and CSIS. Um, but also if after an agreement is signed, not even just with provincial governments, but with foreign governments and international organizations of state at the minister's discretion. Um, you know, Canada has very bitter, long-standing experience with the ways in which ill-considered information sharing can harm individuals, casting back to the Merarar case. So this kind of mildly, weakly constrained information sharing is problematic from a privacy perspective. And then um, more broadly, CCLA has concerns about the scope of information sharing, um, which are long-standing. We've been concerned since the introduction of the Security of Canada Information Disclosure Act um, that was created in the National Security Bill C-51 and refined in C-59. Um, and that uh, you know, essentially created a laundry list of activities that undermine the security of Canada, which includes interference with critical infrastructure, and then made up an even longer list of government institutions that could share information they think is relevant to national security goals. And in that act, there's a, a fairly minimal nod to proportionality in terms of how privacy invasive a disclosure might be. C-26 is yet another step down the road of facilitating sharing for security purposes. One might speculate that it's um, hitting some items on the wish list that got taken out of C-59. Um, and it does this without putting into place a solid framework that acknowledges that there's any privacy risk. So the minister in amendments to the Telecommunications Act can require any person to provide information to them if they believe on reasonable grounds that it's relevant to making an order, even information that's been deemed confidential under the Act, under the definition of the Act. And then under the CCSPA, the cybersecurity portion of Bill C-26, um, there's a range of ministers and heads of institutions like the Bank of Canada who can actually designate investigators to enter private property, um, including homes with a warrant, and do searches of the premises and seize and copy documents. So there's a lot of scope for privacy invasion and no corresponding uh, protections. For example, the bill, despite all of that, assigns absolutely no explicit role for the Office of the Privacy Commissioner of Canada. Yikes! Uh, I mean, when you describe when you describe the, the the breadth of powers and the privacy implications, and then privacy isn't just even an afterthought. There isn't even a clear role for the privacy commissioner that uh, I think, understandably, would ring alarm bells. You know, I I want to come to if if they're not there, what kind of safeguards are in the legislation in a moment? But just before we do that, I, I want to touch for a moment on one of the other elements that that is found in in the letter that you've put together focusing on essential services and communications. And of course, communications is increasingly viewed as an essential service, but you've got concerns that this legislation does open the door to termination of essential services, potentially both as a recipient or someone providing those services. Can you explain how, how that might happen under this legislation? Yeah, so there's a section of this bill that's in section 15 for the you know legislation geeks among us, where the Ministry of Industry um, after consulting with the Ministry of Public Safety, has the discretion um, to decide whether it's necessary to prohibit a telecommunications service provider from providing any service to any specified per person. Um, and person is sort of 
interpreted broadly to mean everything up to and including another telecom provider. Or they can make a provider suspend service for any amount of time to anybody. So in non-legislative language, services can be cut off from anyone at any time if the minister thinks it's necessary to prevent a list of threats that includes but isn't limited to things like interference or manipulation or disruption of a network. Um, none of those terms is actually defined in the Act. So, so here's an example to make that clear. If a ransomware incident is correctly traced to an IP address, the person at that address uh, could be cut off from the internet. But if that same ransomware incident is incorrectly traced, the person misidentified would also be cut off. And then, because the orders can be made in secret if the minister chooses, it might not even be allowed for the ISP, the service provider, to tell the individual why they've been cut off, which, of course, is going to create immeasurable hurdles in trying to correct the error. Another example would be if you have a modem that has been hacked into um, and compromised by something like a botnet, you could all of a sudden lose connection because um, a part of your system is interfering or disrupting a network. So these are ways in which sort of, you know, end, end users, people sitting in front of their computers as we all do every day um, could end up um, having their own service cut off as a result of this bill. I mean, those are, those are some pretty compelling examples. You've mentioned, I think, repeatedly the, the the broad scope, you know, again and again, it's like any this or any that in terms of just how broad some of these powers are defined. So what what safeguards or guardrails um, are built into the legislation? You've already mentioned no clear role for the privacy commissioner. Are there other safeguards that have been built into this legislation or has that been similarly, I guess, a bit of an afterthought? <laughs> well, I mean, the, the, the two-word answer to that question is not enough. I mean, this is a cybersecurity bill where a cybersecurity incident is um, sketchily defined. <laughs> there are some safeguards for individuals who are charged with offenses that involve contravening an order made by the minister. So that's important. Um, no one can be charged if they haven't been notified of an order. So that's something that's more likely to apply to internet service providers who fail to take steps under an order to remove equipment or people from their systems rather than to individuals who are caught up in the removals. Um, individuals, you know, such as the alleged ransomware user in the previous example would probably end up with criminal charges, not charges ultimately made under this act. So the secret, secret nature of the order might remain secret to them. But you know, broadly speaking, government is granted very open-ended powers without even a nod towards, as I keep saying, requiring actions to be proportionate to the risk to infrastructure or security. So there are no privacy or human rights safeguards in this bill really at all. It's kind of fascinating in a sad way that the only attention paid to confidential information is in the context of proprietary business information. Uh, there are provisions also a kind of safeguard for judicial review of a cybersecurity direction, which is, is a kind of safeguard because it's a form of recourse to challenge orders that the subject of the order thinks may be unreasonable or ungrounded. But the rules around those judicial reviews are in turn, their own turn, problematic because uh, the provisions allow for secret evidence to be kept from the applicants and their lawyers. 
and it allows judges to use information that hasn't been provided to the applicant, even in a sanitized summary form for the ultimate decision that the judge makes. So this is a a very national security way of doing things. Uh, That said, even in national security certificate cases under the Immigration and Refugee Protection Act, there is provision for an amicus, a special security cleared lawyer, to be in on the evidence um, and to represent the interest of parties who don't have the right clearance to hear that evidence. And while that process, from our CCLA's perspective, remains an incomplete remedy, at least the Supreme Court, in a case called Harkat, has said it meets the requirements of a fair process. So when we contrast that to C-26, um, there's no such nod to a fair process. And even when you take into account the different consequences between IRPA and C-26, as a matter of principle, the right to make a full and informed defense is a very important component of due process that is missing here. So some serious shortcomings, quite clearly, in terms of what what you would like to see, given the powers, uh, in terms of uh, guardrails or safeguards. You've mentioned secrecy a few times, and, and and sort of exacerbating some of the concerns. One of the reasons for the for the need for these kinds of safeguards is some of the secrecy built in. Can you talk a bit more about how it's built in? What are some of the justifications, either in the legislation or as part of the discussion that? the government has has given for that and and just anticipating a response that that some might make when it comes to cybersecurity saying well of course there's going to be an element of secrecy here um, these are these are serious issues one of the ways you counter it is finding ways to counter it and you can't disclose everything so i'd i'd welcome some thoughts on on how we strike that balance to ensure that we can have effective tools in the cybersecurity realm while at the same time uh, not putting everything into a into a scenario whereby it's unavailable to anyone due to secrecy considerations. Yeah, and I mean, of course, it's entirely reasonable that there be provisions around necessary secrecy when it comes to security and protecting critical infrastructures. Um, that is, it's a given. And even those of us who you know stand up for accountability in such bills admit that there can be reasonable and necessary provisions around appropriate levels of secrecy when it comes to security. Um, The issue, uh, particularly when, as I mentioned, this act is very much positioned in sort of a a national security framing, is that in in that kind of framework, secrecy tends to ride roughshod over accountability, especially if there's a lack of an accountability framework integrated into the bill, which is the case here. Um, I mean, I know you were, you were one of the cohort who fought, along with CCLA and many others, uh, fought really hard about this in the debates around C-51 and C-59, that with great power needs to come great accountability. And we actually made some gains in those fights. I mean, we had in CIRA, which was given an all of national security scope, rather than being stuck in silos, according to which institution or agency was involved in an investigation. We got the quasi-judicial role of the intelligence commissioner added to the review and oversight mix. Um, Here in this bill, by contrast, there is nothing specific. I think it's reasonable to think that in CIRA, the National Security Intelligence Review Agency would probably have review powers because it would be within their all of national security remit. Uh, I mentioned that the OPC isn't specifically mentioned here at all. 
um, there's also no real-time oversight, just a lot of power to the executive branch of government. Under the bill, the minister can issue orders which he can then prevent from being even published in the Canada Gazette and also exclude from the scope of the Statutory Instruments Act, which is a little known sort of obscure act which requires regulations to be published and referred to the committee studying the legislation. Um, the orders can also contradict precedent in cases by regulators. So precedent is public. People rely on it to understand what the rules of the game are when they're engaging in actions or in, in areas where the regulator has control. Um, if secret orders contradict precedent, this leaves the public in the dark about what the rules are or why they are as they are, which is, you know, creates another huge accountability gap. And then there's really inadequate reporting requirements. So under the CCSPA, the minister does have to report to Parliament on the administration of the Act, but there are no specific provisions regarding what that reporting has to include. Basically, we have no real-time oversight, lots of power resting in the executive branch, no provisions for solid or mandatory or real-time oversight, as well as after-the-fact review that NZERO would probably be able to do. Uh, no good provisions for a public reporting framework that, that of course, could leave out the operational details that need to be secret, um, but provide information at the level of policy and impact, sort of a sunlight check on the powers so that members of the public actually have a genuine means to assess how are the, pro how are the powers being exercised? How often are they being used? Uh, what are the impacts on organizations and institutions? Um, and individuals or groups of individuals across Canada. So that feels like a bit of a mic drop moment in terms of just the, the sheer scope of the concerns associated with the bill. But, but, but before I let you go, I want you to pick the mic back up. And uh, <laughs> I, I did, I, and I want to ask you a, a, a couple more questions, although at this stage, you know, it, it feels what one could be forgiven for saying that this, this, this feels enormously problematic. And boy, there is a lot of work to be done on this legislation. But before I, I get to what some of those remedies might be, one last question about the CSE, the Communication Security Establishment, which, of course, those that follow some of these issues will will recognize as one of the 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 lead agencies in this area, Canada's Signal Intelligence and Cybersecurity Agency. Are there? I, I know there are. Can you describe what some of the the new powers that it gets as part of this legislation, and and why that kind of adds in some ways to some of the concerns people have with this bill? Yeah, I mean, the CSE, of course, has. A piece of its mandate under its own act, the CSE Act, that requires it to play a role in cybersecurity and information assurance in Canada. Um, as our signals intelligence agency, that makes sense. Uh, so it is logical uh, that they have been brought into this bill. And what this bill does, however, is mandate that the CSE gets access to a whole lot of information generated as a consequence of a ministerial order because they're a designated body to receive that information, including probably information that under their own act, um, they might have difficulty getting. And then there's a provision that allows um, an appropriate regulator to also provide the CSE with any information, including confidential information about an operator's cybersecurity program and the steps they've taken under an order and giving the CSE a role in provide a very central role 
to provide advice or guidance or services to the regulator who and potentially to the organizations. Um, operators of vital services, so those group operators who have been designated as an operator of a vital service, also have to make their incident reports directly to the CSE. Um, and they have to do so when there's any cybersecurity incident. And a cybersecurity incident in this context is really broadly defined um, as an I'm going to read it, act, omission, or circumstance that interferes or may interfere with the continuity or integrity of a critical cyber system. So very broad definition of what a cybersecurity incident is um, and anything that fits within that definition, not limited to incidents that rise to a certain threshold of risk or potential harm, has to be reported to the CSE. So they have a very central role to play in this bill uh, and the concern or one of the concerns about that central role is there's nothing in this bill that limits what they do with that information specifically to the um, their exercise or to their activities under the portion of their mandate that is about domestic cybersecurity assurance. So the CSE also have other parts to their mandate, including, of course, uh, collection of intelligence and also roles in active and defensive cyber um, uh, defense or attacks. So some of the information that they're provided with respect to these breach reports, um, they might well have a conflict in their mandates. They might well wish to um, stockpile some of the vulnerabilities that come up because they'd be useful in either their defensive or active cyber mandates. Um, so we really need something in this bill that says that vulnerabilities revealed as a result of this process um, have to be taken in, as part of the cyber security mandate, which is domestic, um, and which are going to require fixing and reporting rather than stockpiling and, and um, using in other contexts. Yeah. Okay, so you, you've highlighted at least one potential fix, um, but I just, you know, based on, on sort of the myriad of issues you've raised, clearly there there are many others. Uh, I must admit, there's a bit of a sense of deja vu here for me. Um, you've mentioned C51 and C59, uh, the battles over lawful access. I mean, we've kind of we've seen this movie many times from successive governments, liberal and conservative. It's not a partisan issue; it just seems to be a government issue with agencies that that are often making the case at least internally for more powers and that oftentimes the concerns that arise from that uh, don't get due consideration. Uh, so as we have this legislation hasn't really gone that far in the, within the parliamentary process, you know, let's conclude with this, you know, what next and, and what can people do? Uh, and people listening to this uh, as they learn more and more about this legislation, your views on, I guess, both what to be done, what can be done, but also, you know, what can people do if they've got concerns about where this legislation is headed? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a question that that I and others who contributed to that letter and have been talking over this bill are struggling with, which is, can this bill be fixed um, or should we start again? Um, and the, the danger with starting again is, you know, as I said at the beginning, it is really high time that we had a more fit for purpose cybersecurity bill in Canada. So I'm at the moment and I want to reserve the right to change my mind. <laughs> I do think at this point that it maybe can be fixed, but it really needs substantial amendment. 
Um, I haven't actually done the work to list off a, a really refined series of recommendations about what those fixes need to be. And in fact, um, I'm anxiously looking forward to a report by Christopher Parsons out of the Citizen, Citizen Lab, which should be released in the next few weeks, uh, because I suspect I'll be largely in agreement with the recommendations that that team will make about more specific fixes for the bill. But, you know, in really broad strokes, we need to find a way to include human rights and privacy protections alongside the provisions for expanded information collection and sharing requirements. We need a defined role for the Privacy Commissioner of Canada. We need to limit, as I said a few minutes ago, the CSE to acting within the scope of its information security mandate, not its intelligence or active or defensive cyber mandates. Um, and we desperately need to beef up um, accountability, not just in the form of after-the-fact review, but in the form of real-time oversight and enhanced public reporting. Okay, so a lot of work to be done on the oversight side, on the substantive pieces of the legislation, and uh, we'll, we'll learn more. And Christopher's been a, a past guest on this, and so on this podcast, and so we'll learn more when his report comes out. But in the meantime, Brenda, thank you for pulling together many of those voices and uh, taking the time to come on the podcast to to raise the alarm a little bit on a piece of legislation that's been flying below the radar screen. Thank you. You're someone who has been in these trenches as well and fought the good fight. So I really appreciate having the chance to talk to you about this one. That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at lawbitespod or Michael Geist at mgeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron LeBoy. Music by the LeBoy brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening and see you next time.